Let's pray. As we were just singing, Father, to this we hold. Our hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to Thee when our race is complete. Still our lips will repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in us. We thank You. We thank You for the Christ who is our Lord, who accomplished it all for us. And even though we now go and we toil and we labor, we strive according to your power, which mightily works within us. And we thank you for that. This too is your glory. We ask you, Father, that as we open up your word, that Christ would speak to us. That we would once again be reminded that Jesus is our hope in life and death. And no matter what happens, to us in this life, we can be secure, we can be assured that we stand to enter a new life if we are with Christ now. We thank you that Jesus is our resurrection and life. And this is why we're here on the Sunday. We're gathered because Jesus Christ resurrected for us and we have this hope of eternal life. So bless your word and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. As we continue, slowly, verse by verse, going through just this amazing, amazing book. The first gospel in the New Testament. How many of you are into reading catechisms? Anybody? Catechisms? Um, there, are, there are good tools, good tools for us to learn theology. In fact, there are good tools for um, us to go through with our kids. There's like a, a shorter catechism uh, that's uh, very good. It's basically the way it's arranged, right? You have a question and then you have an answer. Question, answer, question, answer. And you basically go through the entire theology. So uh, two most famous Reformed catechisms are the Westminster Catechism, so you have the longer and the shorter version. And then you have the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, this Heidelberg Catechism, it was written in 1563. 1563. And it also kind of follows the same exact order. Question, answer, question, answer. And, and so it, had, it went through a couple of revisions, so three versions. And, and during that last third version, what they did is they divided up the whole catechisms into 52 sections, okay? So basically 52 weeks out of the year, and usually churches, they get together, and every Sunday they would read a question and they would answer um, one time a, a week. And so it starts out with this first question. It's kind of like an intro. What is your only hope in life and in death? And listen carefully how they answer this question. What is your hope in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. 
In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's deep theology. Now, this answer you you may have noticed is based on the entire revelation of God's word, more, more specifically, the New Testament. In fact, if you were to Google this catechism and if you were to open up a PDF or a web page, you'll probably see these footnotes by every single statement that cites scripture. Here's why we say what we say. And then they quote scripture. And so they indicate that this answer that I just read to you is based on scriptures from Matthew, Luke, John, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, 2nd Thessalonians, Titus, Hebrews, 1st Peter, and 1st John. Specific verses. Here's the theology. Here's how we come up with this particular answer. So talk about a full scope of God's revelation about the person and the effects of Christ's work that are applied to us. Now, here's the question for us to consider as we now look at Matthew and as we study this gospel. What did Jesus's contemporaries know about him? Think about this. He's coming on the scene and he's addressing his people. So the people who are around him, the crowds and, and um, those who hear him, right? The, the Jews and both the Gentiles, what do they know about Jesus Christ? How much did they know? What did the leper or the centurion know of chapter 8? Or the paralytic of chapter 9? Or even his disciples, what did they know about Jesus? We need to conclude that just by reading Matthew or just by reading gospel, they knew very little about this person, Jesus Christ. His own disciples, actually, in chapter 8, they ask this very profound question that we've been returning back to over and over again. Who is this man? They're just dumbfounded at the power and the authority of their rabbi who is hanging out with them and teaching them the word of God. Who is this man? Listen, we know, church, we know much more today because we have in front of us full canon of God's truth from Genesis to Revelation, from from Matthew to Revelation. We know much more than them. And and, and so we, we can't fault them for responding the way they do to Christ. They responded according to the information they had in front of them. So so I will submit to you that as we study this and other gospels, our focus should not necessarily be, right, primarily on the quality of people's response to Jesus, but on the claims that Jesus makes about himself. This is what Matthew wants us to see. That's his goal in chapters 3 through 9, is to present Jesus Christ as the uh, anointed Messiah who came to take away sin. And verse by verse, chapter by chapter, he labors to present this Christ in all of his glory so that people one by one may acknowledge him as coming from God. Yes, in fact, God himself. God is among them. That is the goal of Matthew's gospel. So that people may believe that Jesus is the one and that they would come and place their faith in Jesus. 
him. And so over and over again, if you just read without bringing in theology that we know from other epistles into Matthew, we see that people's response to Jesus is imperfect. It's incomplete. In fact, we'll see in today's passage that this synagogue official and even the woman, they both respond with kind of a superstitious faith. And yet Jesus He doesn't turn them away. He doesn't even scold them for not recognizing his full authority and and full person. He he answers their pleas, and and once again, he demonstrates that God is among them. Now, how does this passage connect to what we've been studying so far? Matthew had just given us in verses 14 through 17, look at those verses with me. He had just finished describing Jesus' encounter with John's disciples and in which Jesus just drops this huge bomb and he says, I am the bridegroom you have been waiting for for centuries. That's me. A new era is upon you, right? This is no time for fasting. This is time for feasting. We have this huge party. Things are going to be radically different from now on. I'm not just the prophet like those who came before me. I'm not even like John. John is great, but I'm not like John. I I, I can't be used as a patch, right? To patch on and to stitch to an old system of doing things. I came to make all things new. That is what he's saying here and what he's teaching in verses 14 through 17. And now Matthew proceeds to show us that since Jesus is this promised bridegroom, who came to make all things new. He is our only hope in this life and next. That is what we need to come away from from this next section of, of these miracles, that because Jesus makes all things new, he is the only hope for us both in life and in death. So read with me as we pick up In verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him and so did his disciples. And the woman who had been suffering from hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she was saying to herself, if only If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowds in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowds had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got got up. This news spread throughout all the land. As we consider this passage, I want us to, to see that Jesus came to touch sinners and give life not only to the living, but even to those who are already dead. If he is the bridegroom, if he comes in, to make all things new. He came in order to touch sinners. This is like personal touch of God. To touch sinners and give life not only to those who are living, 
as we will see, but also to those who are dead. And us as a church, reading these accounts 2,000 years later, it needs to build in us our faith, and it needs to give us this hope, hope of resurrection, hope of expectation that Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. And so this is going to be our, our outline that we'll be working with this morning. Number one, Jesus is our hope in death. Number two, Jesus is our hope in life. And finally, we will look at Jesus is our hope because he redefines death. Because he redefines death. Look with me at verse 18. While he was saying these things, right in the middle of his conversation with John's disciples, Jesus is interrupted by a, by a name Matthew doesn't name. But he says he's an official. He's an official. And again, Matthew uses one of his favorite uh, terms to, to kind of gauge our focus, right, and our attention. It says, and behold, and behold, and while he was saying these things, behold, a synagogue official came. Now, as with many accounts that Matthew records, we have Ma uh, Mark and Luke who also um, have parallel accounts of a lot of these events that Matthew records for us. And this account specifically, with this official and then the woman that interrupts their dealing, Math or Mark and Luke, they, they give you so much more information. In fact, it's like if you compare the length of these passages, it's double from what Matthew devotes here. They give more details about these individuals, their background, their names, why they came, what prompted them to come to Jesus Christ. But, but Matthew here, true to his style, is, is keeping his narrative very, very short because he focuses not on necessarily these guys, but on Jesus Christ. Not so much on the official and, and, and this woman. And, and we know if we were to read, for instance, Mark chapter 5, that this name, or this man's name, a synagogue official, his name is Jairus. Jairus. And he was one of the chief officials or rulers of the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, this means, being the chief official, this means that he was responsible for the administration and operation of the synagogue. He supervised the, the worship service and he oversaw the work of fellow rabbis. So he was like, um, kind of like, not just a member of the board, but, but he was the head member. He was the chairman of the board of elders. And so this, this wasn't a leper or even a Roman centurion or, or, or a tax, Matthew tax collector. This was a high-ranking official of the Jewish religious system. And notice this is around the same time that these Jewish leaders are beginning to show opposition against Jesus Christ. Matthew in chapter 9 begins to show us that not everybody is on board with this quote-unquote miracle worker. Not everybody is excited about Jesus Christ. And so in Matthew 3 or 9.3 and then Matthew 11, Matthew begins to tell us that somebody here is arguing with Christ. Someone has something negative and bad and even evil to say against the work of Jesus Christ. So for Jairus to come to Jesus, it would assume that the, the risk of inviting the scorn, if not outright rejection of the other religious leaders. 
But this man, he seems to be in very desperate situation. He's kind of like what we say, you know, between a, a, a rock and a hard place. His daughter is dead. And, and I don't know how many of us could relate to this. To this man's desperation. And then also, in light of this, he has his job, his career. He is a head elder. And so far, all of these elders, they're looking at Christ and they hate Christ. And this man has to part with his buddies and go in and to plead with the one that's being hated by his friends. Think through this. Think, think through what we've studied so far in Matthew. Jesus is healing in Capernaum for a while. This is his city. He is still there. He had healed a centurion, Peter's mother-in-law, or centurion's son, rather, Peter's mother-in-law, and he performed, we see in Matthew chapter 8, many other miracles in Peter's home. And so no doubt here that if, if uh, Jairus is the head of the synagogue that's located in Capernaum, Jairus is there, he knows, he sees, there's a lot of commotion People are flooding to Jesus Christ to get healed. Don't you think Jairus is aware of that? He knows what's going on. I'm sure he would have heard, maybe even personally looked at, and maybe was part of it somewhere in the crowd, you know, on the outskirts, like, let me see what this miracle worker is all about. What is he doing? And, and we know also from Mark and, and Luke and their account that Jairus initially came to Jesus when his daughter wasn't dead. But it says that she was at a point of death. And then when he's finally with Christ, they tell us that his servants come and it's like, hey, don't bother him. Your daughter is dead. Forget it. If there was a chance for your daughter to be healed, it's gone. Don't waste your time. And what that, t that tells me is evidently he held off. He held off for a very long time of bringing her to Christ, most likely because of fear of other religious leaders, fear of what they might say and do. But now the desperation is great. And Matthew here for us, he picks up a record when Jairus comes to Jesus saying that his daughter, 12-year-old daughter, we find out from other accounts, is already dead. This is what Matthew wants us to focus. He, he leaves all of the other background behind. He comes to Jesus and his daughter is dead, yet he pleads. What is he asking? What is he asking Christ? Well, this man, as we said, he's in a tough place. He's been holding out and now his daughter is dead. All hope is lost, humanly speaking. There's no reason, right, to seek for solution in this life, yet he has faith. He's heard and he's seen Jesus probably. Jesus, up to this point, notice he had never raised a dead person. And yet, he is hopeful that he would. Because someone like him probably had access to the Old Testament. He read the Old Testament and knew that some of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, they had the ability from God even to raise the dead. And if this man is coming out here and claiming to be God himself, then perhaps he has the power to do the same. And he comes and says, and he bows down. He bows down. 
And this is remarkable considering all that's on the line for Jairus. He is breaking rank with fellow rabbis by doing this. But think about this, church. What is compelling this man to come to Jesus and bow down before him? Is he coming to worship and to adore Jesus as his Lord? Or is he most likely motivated by his anxiety and fear and just distress that my daughter is dead? Yes. Everything in this text seems to indicate it's the latter. It is fear. It is anxiety. It is this distress. In fact, he doesn't address Jesus as Lord. If you look at other uh, instances like a leper even, or, or someone like Centurion, they come to him as like Lord, or sometimes teacher. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He just says, my daughter has just died. I'm a desperate man. But, but, and, and in the original, you see this contrast. I know this is the fact, but there is hope. Come and place your hand on her and she will live. There's no doubt in his mind that Jesus has miraculous power. He's heard and he's aware of his ability. And so he, he literally throws, prostrates himself before Jesus and says, if you come and if you lay your hand on her, she will live. Now think about this. Remember just before, just before, we have this Gentile centurion who comes to Jesus and he says, my son or my slave is at a point, right, of death. Very similar account. Come and heal him. And Jesus says, I'll go. I'll go. Let's go. I'm ready. And he said, whoa, 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 no, no, you don't have to go. Gentile centurion, you don't have to go. You can just say a word. Like, don't come to my place. Just say a word and my servant will be healed. But this man here, he wants Jesus to lay his hand on his daughter. Maybe because he thought that this miracle, to raise someone from the dead, listen, none of this had ever occurred up to this point. In his ministry, to raise someone from the dead perhaps required additional power or maybe uh, closer proximity to this person. You see that although this man has faith, man, it's driven by great desperation and it's, it's really incomplete. Yet Matthew here, he, he wants us to focus not on the quality of this man's faith, but on its object, Jesus. Jesus. This man's hope for his Daughter who's dead is firmly placed in Christ. If you come, she will live. You're my only hope in her death. So how does Jesus respond? Listen, he doesn't chide this man for, for seeking him only when there seems to be no other way or no other person who could restore a dead person to life. You should have brought her earlier. Wasn't I around? No, he he doesn't say any of that. In fact, Jesus doesn't say a single word. He doesn't condemn nor command this official's faith. Matthew's here, his emphasis is on Jesus' action. And, and remember that Jesus was not afraid to tell people that their faith was misplaced or lacking, like he often said, you of little faith wasn't afraid to say that. This was a perfect occasion. Jesus, why don't you do it? 
but Jesus just simply gets up and he follows. And isn't this a picture of how ready God is to answer the cry of those who seek him, even in moments of great desperation? That's what it meant to teach us. It wasn't a perfect cry of deep faith in the Son of God. But nonetheless, Jesus demonstrates great compassion and love for God towards desperate sinners. This is his character. You're hurting? I will go. Let's go. And verse 19, he gets up and begins to follow him. I want you to see something about our Lord specifically in this section. Matthew here just seems to be emphasizing Jesus' touching, Jesus touching the, the afflicted. Uh, he touched her, right? Touch her, touch her and she will live, is what this official says. Or this woman later on says, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. Or Jesus goes into the room and lays his hand on the daughter and she raises you know, the gospel in general, they use words like hands and, and fingers and touch nearly 200 times. And oftentimes, it's referring to Christ doing the touching. Why is that important? For instance, Jesus put out his hand and touched him. So he touched her hand. He went in and took her by the hand. And he touched their eyes. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand. Jesus came and touched them. Then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. And it just communicates to us that God is a relational being. And Jesus Christ, who is God himself, was not afraid to touch others, to be personal, to be relatable. Leprous skin brothers and sisters, did not discuss Jesus. And even the dead body did not defile him. He came to be life and give life. As we read, John 5 says, just as the Father has life in himself, so does the Son. The Son has life in himself, and therefore he can make others alive. Jesus came to, to demonstrate God's tender love and care he was sent to give hope to suffering sinners. And not just any temporal hope, like, we'll make it till tomorrow. No, eternal hope. Eternal hope. And, and on his way to the cross, because that's what we're doing. We're following Jesus with Matthew on his way to the cross. He demonstrated his supreme authority over sickness, over nature, over spiritual realm. And even over death. This account here is only a precursor to what will take place in Matthew 28, his own resurrection. His own resurrection. And so he goes in verse 19 without any hesitation to Jairus' house. Because both of them know that Jesus is their only hope in death. Obviously, we, we only see seeds of this glorious truth in this story, but as, as these seeds, they begin to germinate throughout the gospel and even into epistles, we find much more about this truth, don't we? That Jesus is our resurrection and life. I want us to continue to, to look at this next story, and then we'll tie them 
together, as we follow along, Matthew here in verse 20 has another behold. As they're walking, they're probably leaving this place and they're walking and Jairus is probably running just ahead of Jesus, pointing to the way to his house. Behold, verse 20, a woman. There's an obstacle in the way, a, a divine interruption of sorts. Jesus is rushing to the daughter, but he's interrupted by another hopeless soul. A woman who is just as uh, desperate as Jairus. It's instructive that all the gospel accounts, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record this miracle with the woman within the miracle of healing of Jairus' daughter. This means, obviously, that the account here is historically accurate, but it also gives us a profound picture that Jesus comes to restore life for the dead as well as for the living. On the way to give resurrection, he heals a living soul. So I want us to look at number two. Jesus is our hope in life. Not only is he our hope in death and we ought to seek him, but he is our hope in life. Jesus restores life for the living. And behold, once again, man, Jesus is always interrupted. If you think that Jesus had his ministry together, you know, like look at his calendar, you know, I wake up at six, six through nine is my personal devotional time, you know, with my father. And then from nine to 10, I have three appointments with some of my members from the 12, you know, and then none of this. He's just doing life. He's living for the glory of his father and he's ministering and constantly being interrupted over and over, just constantly disrupted. But man, is he full of patience towards sinners. Oh, there's so much to learn for us. He just demonstrates divine care and godly concern for the needy and broken. And you can probably imagine the official here, Jairus, who is a little bit ahead because Jesus is following him to, to his house here. And so he looks back and all of a sudden he notices that Jesus stopped following and this crowd is forming around him, right? And he's looking back, it's like, we need to go, sir. My daughter is dead. I'm not sure how much he, he appreciated this stoppage, this, this interruption. We got to go. But Matthew says, no, 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 behold, this woman is suffering from hemorrhage for 12 years. 12-year-old daughter, 12 years suffering with hemorrhage. Literally, it, it literally says in Greek, she is hemorrhaging. She's losing blood continuously. And it most likely refers to her menstrual bleeding. It, she had a problem with her womb that nobody could stop, nobody could care for. And that being the case, if you go back to the Old Testament and you read the Old Testament law, for instance, Leviticus chapter 15, because of this condition, she is ceremoniously unclean. She is unclean. Now, also anything that she comes in contact with, she sits down on something, she touches something or someone is also considered unclean. Given her condition with her womb, she probably can't have any children. And because of that, she is not considered marriageable in that culture. And if she was already married, this condition would most likely result in a divorce in that culture. 
And so the result would then be complete isolation, loneliness. She is living on the fringe of society. This is, this is who this woman is. And she comes to Jesus just like Jairus in great desperation. And Mark tells us that, tells us that this woman, she suffered greatly at the hands of many physicians. And in fact, he goes on to say that this woman spent all she had in search of cure, everything. So it wasn't as if she was just enjoying her life, living on you know, the fringe of society, lonely. She wanted to get back into her society, to be a normal member, to get healed, to get restored. And yet nothing and no one helped for 12 years. 12 years of searching for a cure in order to have this capacity to reproduce life. And I know that, you know, we have some women among us or we had before who, who could not bear children. And it was just such a heartache for many as you were crying out, for the Lord to give you the ability to conceive and to start bearing kids. But in that society, being this woman, you were done. Unless someone came in and dealt with your problem and gave you a cure, you couldn't even enjoy marriage. You couldn't even enjoy society as we know it today. It's just a desperate, desperate person living without any ability to produce life, to give birth. Do you see the similarity? 12-year-old girl who's dead and a woman who's been suffering for 12 years with a dead womb. Both are desperately looking for Jesus. Why? To receive life. And Jesus here is the one who can make all things new. Isn't that what he said in, in verses 14 through 17? He can do, listen, what no one else can do. No earthly means could ever buy. And once again, here he proves it. Jesus is the only hope for life and death. He offers what nobody else could offer, no matter how much you pay them. He is a compassionate Savior. Again, the focus here is is not on how we approach the Savior, but on his power and his willingness to give life. I have life in myself, he says. I'm going to give it to you. And so she comes from behind. Look at this. She came from behind. She's been living on the outside the whole time. And she's like, I don't even want to make myself known. I don't even want to approach and make a big deal. I just, I know probably if I get to Christ, I will touch him and and I will be healed. Just need to touch, not even Christ, but, but his cloak. And she was saying to herself, this word is very, or this verse here is very powerful. Verse 21, look at that. For she was saying to herself, not because it's a bit superstitious, but because of the grammar. It literally says that she was continually saying and repeating to herself over and over again, if I could just get to Jesus, if I can just, just maybe touch, not even him, but touch his cloak, I'll, I'll be okay. And, and this statement here is not like a definitive fact. It's a definitive statement, but it has this doubt within. So, so she's like, 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I get to him, but if I, if I can, I will touch him and I will be healed. Maybe if I'm going to go. And so she's wondering, will I? Will, I'm going to go. And so this tense that, that Greek here uses is it's not a definitive, I will get to Jesus. But she says, no, if I get, I will be healed. She's heard enough about this Christ and she knows that Man, this is probably my last chance. I've, I don't have anything else. I've given everything up for 12 years trying to find a cure, and I am done. And look what happened. She's healed. She's healed. She comes to Christ with the superstition that if I touch him, I will get healed, and she gets healed. So for us, church, living in the 21st century, we read this verse she touches, she believes that she can touch Jesus, and she gets healed. What do we make of this? Is this how we, we who have the full revelation of God's word, is this how we need to approach Jesus Christ today? In other words, if I can just pull a Gideon and lay out the fleece, right, then something will happen. Or, or if this anointed one comes in and I will touch him or he will touch me, then I will get healed. Or if I just buy this special napkin from the televangelist who's selling it for 15 bucks and he sends it to me and I touch it, I will receive healing. Is this how we know Christ today, church? No, this is not the way. Again, we must not fault this woman for her approach because of At this point in God's revelation, listen, the focus is not so much on her approach. The focus is on the object that she is approaching, Jesus Christ. And as always, Jesus is so patient and is so kind to those who come to him in humility and brokenness. As soon as she touches him, Jesus, he says, he turns around and he says, daughter, take courage. He knows who touched him. He knows who this woman is. She wasn't healed because of some magic. She was healed because Jesus was there. It's because of his presence. The very God in human flesh is among his people. He is touching and he is restoring life. Jesus is not afraid to be touched by her or to identify with her. Daughter, he says, fear no more. Literally, fear no more. Take courage. Be built up. I am here for you. Don't be afraid. Your faith has made you well. And and look at this. At once, the woman was made well. God, so many resources, so many years spent in search of a cure. And Jesus says, daughter, Your faith has made you well. Boom, immediate healing. Why did Jesus say your faith has made you well? Well, no doubt it was to make certain to her and to those around her that it wasn't her superstition, but it was Jesus himself who made her well. Your faith, although imperfect, saved you. You believed in me, literally, and you were seeking after me as your only hope, as your last resort. 
And I give you what you were looking for because only I can. And friends, don't get it confused. Jesus says that your faith has made you well. But what it assumes is faith in him made you well. Faith alone has no ability to cure and to kill. No ability. Faith is simply an instrument. It's a means which takes you to the object of your faith. So faith ties you to this powerful object. When we say we believe, just because you believe, so what? Who do you believe? And can the one you believe in prove to be someone you say he is or she is or it is? That is what's at stake. Your faith in me has made you well. No doubt this woman had a lot of faith when she spent, I don't know how many thousands of dollars and gave them up to the physicians. Why? Because she believed that that physician is not like the previous one. And this one makes claims that the other did not make. Therefore, I will be healed only to be what? Turned back. No, you're not. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well because I am the object of your faith. You sought, you finally sought the right person. In all of your desperation, even if it's your last resort, I am here willing to give you what you were looking for. What a gift of life for the living. Church, in these two pictures of desperation, we must see a greater picture of our own helplessness and hopelessness. We may despair over many problems in life, relational problems. How many of you have relational problems? We deal with this all the time. Maybe you're suffering with personal illness and you're tempted sometimes. You know, I wish, I wish Jesus was here, like in his person, and I could just walk up to him and he would remove this chronic pain. Or maybe you're just in this fierce battle with sin that you just can't seem to overcome. The key to dealing with each of these pain points is turning to Christ. Turning to Jesus and no one else. And it's true because when we read the rest of the Old, uh, New Testament, Jesus and his apostles, they, they tell us plainly that our circumstances may not improve. We may still be hurting. Paul prayed three times that whatever was bothering him would be removed. And, and, Paul, and God said, listen, brother, my, my grace is sufficient for you. I will take you through, but I will leave that there. You look to me. You draw strength from me, and I will supply all the grace that you need to get you through. Your circumstances may not change, but when you look to Christ, you will. Your attitudes will. Friends, are you desperate for Jesus today or not? And I'm not just referring to the unbelievers here in this room, but to the Christians here in this room. Are, listen, we are desperate for Christ as when we first came to him. Do you believe that or not? You are as desperate. I am as desperate for Christ today than when I first realized my initial need for him. John 6 66 uh, six and 69 says, Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. 
So Jesus said to the 12, he turns around to the 12 who are following him and he says, do you not want to go away also? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else do we go, friends? Jesus, where should we run to? Jesus is our only hope in life, friends. He came to give meaning to our life. He came to restore us to himself. And and more than any physical pain and more than any physical healing, he came to deal with our sins. And, And friends, there is nothing that makes you so unclean and so useless that Jesus wouldn't touch you with his life-giving touch. He came to touch people. Because his words are life. Why do we re- return? Why do we go back to him as believers? Peter says, where do we go? We come to you. Why? Because you have the words of life. His word continues to sustain our faith in him because the most In the most difficult of times, when we look to him, we are being transformed and built up in faith. And when our circumstances, they overwhelm us, and when our bodies fail, and even when our breath expires and we die, because that happens too. God tells us that happens. We experience this in life. We bury our friends, our parents, We do that. But even when that happens, all is not lost, friends. If Jesus is your hope in life, then Jesus will be your hope in death. Why is that? Why would anyone believe this? No one is able to come back from life when they've gone cold. It is not so with Jesus. So finally and quickly, I want us to look at the final point. Jesus is our hope because he redefines death. This is why, because Jesus is different. He's not like anybody else who came before him. He is different. They're finally in the house. And if anything, Jesus here is even, or Jairus here, he's even more sure that Jesus will raise his daughter, having observed, you know, what happened to this woman. It's like, all right. Good, I I came to the right person. This is great. Which brings up another side application real quick. You know, Jesus often, think about this, Jesus often increases our faith by demonstrating his power in the life of someone else first. So think about this, church, and, and consider those around you and think about how Jesus today and yesterday and two weeks ago and a month ago was working in their life and increasing their faith and see how it impacts you, that you might believe today. So he impacted their faith, rose them up so that they continue to walk in faith. And in the same way, when we gather in the community and we discuss, hey, what's going on in your life? How you doing? How you doing? And all of a sudden, by you sharing your faith, you are building my faith. That's what the Lord does, and I'm sure that's what he did here with Jairus. But back to our story, Jairus and Jesus, they enter the house, and they're greeted by the flute players, and there's a lot that can be said here. We're just going to 
Um, put that aside for now. Jesus here, he comes in and he announces and he says, get out. Verse 24, get out, leave, leave. For the girl has not died, but is asleep. Clearly the girl is dead. Everybody knows the girl is dead because these professional mourners who are here in the house, so they hired, in fact, by their tradition, even the, the um, poorest family, they had to hire at least two professional mourners who would come in, learn the names of the living and the dead, and they would just come and they would weep and they would raise their voices. They would invite the flute players and they would play along because, man, this is a great tragedy. And so obviously they looked at the girl, determined that she was dead, and now they are mourning. They're mourning. But because of Jesus' words here, some have suggested that this was not a miracle in this story. And that Jesus knew that, you know, the daughter wasn't really dead, but she was in the coma, and so he was going to wake her up from sleep. And they laughed. They mocked. Literally, they laughed him down. No doubt they thought, yeah, this miracle worker, we heard a lot about him. Even the professional mourners, I'm sure they heard about Jesus. He just showed up too late. He showed up three hours later than he should have. They probably knew that Jesus is capable of, but, but they know the girl is dead. But Jesus says, get away, go. She is sleeping. And, and is this amazing or what? Like, read this statement again. Leave for the girl has not died but is asleep. You and I know she's dead, but Jesus says, no, she's not. No, she's not. He says, the dead are sleeping they're sleeping. Jesus here is not denying her death. He is redefining it. He says that her death is not the end. It's not the grim reality it seems. It's nothing worse than just deep sleep. And in due course, she will get up again. She is sleeping. In just a short while, Jesus will be dying and getting up again himself. And because of this, you and I will likewise be dying and getting up again. Jesus says, this gal here is just sleeping and I came to raise her up and give her life because in just a few short years, I will do the same. And because of Christ throughout the Bible, sleep here is used as a euphemism for death. They will all wake up. Friends, we will all wake up once we are laid down. Your friends, your relatives who, who went to be with the Lord, they will wake up. Isn't that great reality? And that's exactly what happened. Jesus kicks out the crowd, enters the room, takes her by the hand. Again, the touch of God through Christ takes her by the hand, raises her up, and it says that the news about him spread everywhere. This word for news, it literally is great fame. His fame, the fame of his name spread everywhere. Jesus came to give life to the living and the dead. Martin Luther lost his 13-year-old daughter, Magdalena, to the great plague that swept through Europe in the 16th century. And those who, who knew of Luther later on, they recalled this event by saying, quote, brokenhearted, Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from the pain. Then when she had finally died, 
and the carpenters were nailing down the lid of the coffin, Luther screamed out, hammer away, hammer away, for on the last day she will rise again. Friends, this is our hope for all who die in the Lord. Our ultimate hope is not to escape death. This is why us living during this pandemic, right, afraid of the repercussions, we do our best to take care of ourselves and those around us. But as Christians with hope of eternal life, we are not paralyzed by fear because our ultimate goal and our ultimate purpose is not to cheat death. We will die. You will die unless the Lord comes during your life. Who can escape death? This 12-year-old girl died again. Lazarus, who was resurrected by Jesus, died again. This story here is not about how we should trust that Jesus will save us from an earthly death or from death itself. That's not what this story teaches us. Jesus here, listen friends, Jesus here is not this mythical fountain of youth. He is our resurrected Savior. He died himself and was brought back to life. Jesus could redefine death because he conquered it on the cross. He overcame Adam's curse by living, dying, and resurrecting as a perfect man. And if you and I are united to him by faith, though we may die, we will be raised up to life again. Jesus is our hope in life. Jesus is our hope in death. This is our only hope. So believe. Come to Christ in your desperate moments knowing that he is ready to receive you as you are. If you are a believer, keep coming to Christ in the most desperate of situations. Why? Because he has words of eternal life to build you up and to get you going, to restore you. And even when you pray like crazy and God takes you or someone you love home, go back to these words and be built up that this is but a sleep. He's coming back. She's coming back. You will see them if they die in Christ because Jesus is our hope. We thank you, Lord, for this word. I pray that you would strengthen our faith to believe it, to hold on dearly to your words. In the deep moments of desperation, help us not to lose sight of these things, but cling ever so tightly to your truth. You are our hope. And in this hope we go forth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.